Hey everybody, welcome into the Real Show podcast. Today's guest is Eric Layden. He's an actor out of LA, grew up in Houston. I met him through Lance Zerline. He is also the co-host with Lance on the Off Script podcast, which is available right now. Had a great time talking to Eric about his journey, his career, and everything else. Give it a listen. Also, thank you so much for sharing the show. June 6th is soon approaching. Our push for 1,000 new subscribers is still going on. Share this episode with five people. Tell them to subscribe and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. Thank you so much. Here he is, Eric Layden. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the Raheel Show podcast. I'm Raheel Ramsnali, and... Joining me today is Eric Layden, as you can see if you're watching live, famous actor, fully functional IMDb page, and the co-host of the Offscript podcast, which has relaunched for season two, the Quarantine Chronicles, as I like to call them, because you got free time to do this now. Eric Layden, Houston native, who is a famous actor, as I mentioned, he's really famous to me. Like I love, I love everything you stand for. I love for all mankind by the way i watched it because you were in it and we'll talk about that uh how's everything going dude it's good man it's good i mean uh considering the the state of of the nation right now uh it's as good as it can be i guess for me personally i'm i'm healthy my kids are healthy uh from from everything and and we're safe and sound and uh so physically we're in good shape i guess a little bit emotional spiritually we're a little down like i i'm sure everybody is but uh but we're in, a, we're in a good spot. Yeah, and we're going to talk about it. We'll spend some time on this. Uh, we've got, on this show at least, uh, coming up, we've got some really good good guest schedule to talk about the current state. And what we're talking about, we're not going to beat around the bush here, what's happening in our black communities, what's happening with our black brothers and sisters, uh, the police brutality, the the racism that they are trying to fight, and we are trying to fight with them. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. But we start every podcast, especially with a guest, with the same five questions. Eric's, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, number one. What is one song you wish everybody would listen to at least one time? Uh, I, can I be like a little off guard here? I mean, maybe because what I'm listening to right now. How about something from a, a band called Camp that I'm listening a lot to right now? C-A-A-M-P. There's a song called All the Debts I Owe. Uh, I absolutely love it. There's one other one I'm going to mention though. Um, that is, I think like so lyrically beautiful, um, called if we were vampires by a guy named Jason Isbell, uh, just absolute killer lyrics, uh, really phenomenal song. Okay. Number two, what is one thing you always have to have in your fridge? Pickles. What kind? I'm, I I like a lot of different types of pickles. Got to have dill for the burgers, but got to have like a sweet spicy for just the like late night, you know, four or five pickles while I'm watching TV. Bro, a sweet spicy pickle oh. is one of the most underrated used items in the fridge. Who do you go with? I just picked some up today. There's a, um, yeah, there's like local brands over here in Texas that are phenomenal. Um, I like the H-E-B one. The, the okay. straight up H-E-B yeah. brand one, it's good because H-E-B has mastered the art of taking what's popular and then getting their recipe down. Oh, yeah. And then making it their own. A little reverse engineering. Yeah. It's called Steal Like an Artist. That's what yeah, they, they do. they do that up in Kirkland, too. 
Is that what they're doing? What do you use? What brand do well, you Kirk, like? You know, Kirkland's the home of Costco, so they mm-hmm. do, they do that a lot up there. Uh, Bubby's is really good. I think it's called Bubby's. Um, and then there's one um, called Famous. I know the labels. It's so funny. I just bought it today. It's called like Famous Pete's or Famous. So I think it's called Famous Peaks Pete's, and it's it's a great like spicy one. Okay. And then our farmer's market has some pretty epic ones just that are non-branded. They're from the, the local guys in the market. Bro, the farmer's market in L.A. must have the best stuff. Oh, it's got a lot of good good produce, man. They've got, like, and the good, next like, level. preserves and, like, there's, a, um, there's this Mexican family that comes uh, to our local farmer's market. And I've been talking to them since they started, since they came, joined. And they bring these like salsas and ceviches and like picantes. Uh, oh, they're so good. They're so good. I okay, number three. What is one place you want to visit that you haven't yet? The south of France. Okay. You yeah. seem like a guy that already been there. No, no. Been, been to Italy a lot. Uh, I've been to France, but not the south of France. Uh, okay. And that's somewhere. Spain and the south of France are the next two on my list. Nice. Go go right now. They've got great deals. <laughs> Such good deals on airfare. Might as well. I mean, yeah. just say you just say you got a gig. Yeah, be the only person on the plane. That's one of the <laughs> downsides, though, of like what I do. I often wait because I feel like, oh, you know, it will be better if I – like just get my work gig there and then they pay and I go and I spend like six months there. You know what I mean? So a lot of times I like hold off and I shouldn't, I should just go. Yeah. You're just waiting for that next James Bond movie that is filming Mm -hmm. down there. And you're like, you know what? I'll go ahead and be bad guy. Number four, just for that opportunity to be there for at least one shoot. That's not bad. That's not a bad day's work. I was supposed to do, uh, you know, Clooney did that, um, remake of catch 22 for Hulu. I think. And I was the choice for like a while, and then they, some fucking Brit scooped in and took it, uh, like the last minute. I think because he lived, you know, who knows where he lived. But it was going to be like they were filming in like five or six different countries all over the world, and I was like, this, this is it. This is going to be like a location porn. This is going to be epic. So yeah, I need to find like a good like Matt Day, like a born movie. Or Bond movie where it's just pure location porn, and I get to just go Jack Ryan. That's another good one. You know, Ooh, Jack Ryan's like a good one. Like six, seven different countries. Have you ever thought of doing Bollywood films because they do a lot of scenes? I'm in. Um, you know, they they always need white people. I'm in. Might as well. Just yeah. gotta learn. Gotta learn a little bit of Hindi, and you're good. I, I think. Bro, be I've been out of work since since December. So I'm in on anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who is one person alive you want to meet and have coffee with? Obama. Wow. That's a good one. What would you talk to him about? I think I'd be so interested. I would love to sit down with a president, and I'd love to sit down with one in recent, you know— I would love to talk to him about just, well, clearly like what's going on uh, in America, but also what that was like just to, you know, sit down and have a meaningful conversation with somebody one-on-one 
what that was like for him because that he, he experienced something that no one had ever experienced before. Um, and then obviously just like life in the White House for eight years would be pretty epic to talk to him about. Um, I, any president I think would be phenomenal to sit down and talk to. I can't even imagine the stress that they are under every mm-hmm. single minute of the day, right? Like you, there is no break in the day if you're the president. I mean, unless you're golfing, which some presidents do a lot more than others. So, yes. Trump. Um, but even then, like when you're on the golf course, you've got Secret Service with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, is your phone going off the whole time? For if sure. If you're President right? Obama, if you're at dinner with your family and raising teenage girls at the time, they, were, they ended up, uh, no, the youngest one was eight, I believe, the first term. So they ended up being teenagers right. um, during his term. Man, that'd be so stressful. You're trying to talk to him about life events and, hey, um, we got the situation right now. You got to go. Yeah, sorry. I've got uh, Putin's on the phone. I just got to run real quick. (laughs) I got to take this. Freaking nuts, man. Okay, what is one app that you want to delete from your phone, but you just can't? Instagram. Wow. You don't like social media that much from the outside looking in. No. Which is a shock. Which is a shock. And, well, no, let me rephrase it. It's a shame because of all the cool roles that you have, you have the ability to have the dopest profile pictures. And you should be taking full advantage of this. I know. What I need, I've talked to you about this in the past. I need somebody to just do it for me. Mm -hmm. It's it's just the act of, like, doing it. I don't, I'm not a good self-promoter on social media like that's just not in my nature so that aspect of it is hard for me and that's the only reason i even have a profile to begin with uh otherwise i wouldn't even have one so did your management tell you like hey eric you have to have an instagram account at least that come on yeah pretty much i mean because producers and networks like to send you stuff to put up so Mm -hmm. I think you'd be um, awesome on Twitter. I liked Twitter for a little while, and I had fun on it, and I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the back and forth. But then, it st- a it started to consume me, and b it just I feel like over the last few years, it's just gotten to a place where like I don't know, you don't know who you're talking to ever. There's no, no one's genuine. It doesn't seem sincere. Um, there's all ulterior motives. You know, I don't know. We just talked about this on our podcast for a long time, so I'm sure it's redundant, or at least it is in my head. But, yeah, it's just – it's a tough I, – I feel like Instagram, even when you post something organically, it's never looked at as organic, you know? Yeah, it's always about are you doing this for the gram or is this something that you actually are proud of? Yeah, like what? What? Why are you doing it? Why do you have it? What are you trying to show? You've clearly got a curated page. Like, what? What is? What is it? You yeah. know? Did you see the viral video? Of the girl with the drill. You probably saw that. Yeah. The that, so that account that it came from is brilliant. I don't know if you follow it yet, but it's called Influencers in the Wild. And what okay. it is, it's people coming across moments like that where these influencers are doing ridiculous poses they're doing dumb things and it's turned into this viral sensation where 
You just come across these people all the time. And frankly, most of them are not as tone deaf as that one was where sure. you were talking about the one uh, where one of the influencers walks up to somebody that was actually working on putting up some plywood in an area that was uh, it was a Santa Monica mm-hmm. uh, where protesters and looters had, you know, destructed that store. So they're putting up some plywood and she gets she goes up there for a moment, takes a drill, takes a picture and just bounces. And her boyfriends with her, of course, taking that picture. And there's a good account called Boyfriends of uh, Instagram, which is pretty I've funny as well. So it, it's, you know, like it's so ridiculous where and when these people do pictures and take pictures. Um, but. To me, okay, for Instagram at least, what I found, I was like you, I was like, okay, I'm starting to post a lot of promotional stuff. I'm starting to post a lot of stuff where my friends and family probably are like, okay, we don't care. We're following you because we want to know what's happening in your life. It's a good way to keep in touch with everybody. So I created a whole separate account and I'm straightforward. Like this is for promotional stuff. Mm -hmm. My Raheel Doing Things account is strictly for podcast, for Mm -hmm. work-related and mm-hmm. things where, hey, this is what's happening. And then I have a friends and family one that mm-hmm. you probably can't even find anymore because I changed the name on it. Mm-hmm. And that's for pictures of my daughter, pictures of my wife, because they don't like being I like I don't like posting stuff about my kids. Nope. I hate or my kid. I hate that. Like, I think it's one. It, it just makes me cringe. Right. Um, and it's not because companies are going to take pictures and use it for marketing and all of that. Like, I don't that doesn't happen working in social media before. It really doesn't happen. Um, and then my wife hates it because she didn't sign up for this. She doesn't want right. people seeing pictures of her because she, she works She works in a medical profession as a normal person, right? Right. So, like, you got to create two different accounts, man. Because one is strictly, as you mentioned, like, hey, look, I'm self-promoting here. I don't care. And then one is for friends and family. Like, hey, here's how we're, you know, here's what's happening. First day of kindergarten, all that stuff. Yeah, so I guess, like, I don't, I, I guess my feeling on the friends and family one is, like, if you're if you're friends or family, you'll get that picture. I'll text it okay. to you. I'll email it to you. You know what I mean? Like I don't need to put it on social media. Um, even if it's a even if it's like a private account. My kids, like I I was in Vancouver doing a show and I was with my boys. Uh they were visiting me and we we were at Home Depot in Vancouver. And a dude walked up to me and he kind of like walked past me in the aisle and he looked at me and kind of gave me the look that I know what the look is. You know, it's that look of like, wait, do I, did we go to high school together? Like what he's processing. And then eventually he's like, Oh, right. And then he finally comes up to me and he's like, Hey man, uh, I just want to say like, you know, like I'm a fan or whatever. I was like, Oh cool, man. Thanks very much. And then he was like, your boys are getting so much bigger. And I was like, what? And he's like, I follow you on Instagram, and I saw some pictures of these guys, like, you know, from when they were kids, like, babies or whatever. And I was like, that's it. That's a wrap. Wow. And, like, no more. And then I had people reaching out to my wife on her account, trying to get things from me. And so I was just like, there's no family on my account, no kids. If there is a picture, maybe it's like you see the back of my kid's head or something. Um but yeah, it just to me that was like I don't I don't want it just made me feel weird. I didn't like the way it felt. And one thing that I always laugh at, and I have like friends in the industry that do this, and I think it's fucking absurd. 
they post a family picture and then they blur out their kid's face or they'll put a star (laughs) over it. I'm like, dude, if you don't want that on there, don't post that picture. Like why you surely you took another one without them. Like, why did you choose that one? By doing that, you're drawing all the attention to the fact that you're like, I want to post this, but I don't want you to see my kid. Just don't post the fucking picture then post another one. It's so true. I it's it, crazy, dude. It's like, come on, what are you guys doing? Uh, Jason Concepcion of the Ringer Network. Uh, he does a show called NBA Desktop, and I I praise that show every single time I can because it's brilliant. Uh, but he had a funny thing about that where when Giannis his uh his baby was born, so they post a picture and he puts like a little emoji over it, and he goes. Are, Yep, Giannis, you stopped everybody from looking at your kid, buddy, by posting that little emoji. Like, what are we doing? It's so ridiculous. Just, I'm with you. Like, just don't post the picture. If you don't want it up there, don't post a picture. That's it. It's such an eye roll, dude. Yeah. I mean, it's I, just, it's such an eye roll. I posted a picture of my daughter one time on Twitter. And it was the only time, and, and the reason I did was because it was part of the Lululemon campaign I was uh, doing here locally. And they wanted her to be a part of it. And I was like, uh, I don't know. My wife was kind of against it. But we still were like, okay, let's take pictures and let's see what they look like. And it came out really nice. And, it, you know, of course, they did it in a classy way and all that stuff. And I posted a picture of it and I forgot to blank out. And I was like, what am I doing? Why am I blanking out a picture? I'm going to just share this one moment and that's it. And I like it, it felt so bad. Like, again, yeah. it feels so weird sharing a picture of your family. And I do it. And I've talked about this on other podcasts. I do it because there's, you know, there's people out there that don't have kids that want kids. And it's almost like when you share a picture on Twitter, on Instagram, if you're in a public setting, in a public limelight, excuse me, it's almost like you're bragging. And I I, I put myself in their shoes where if I really wanted a kid and for whatever reason, right, like it's hard having a kid. I think people forget that. And you see those pictures. Imagine how they feel. You know, like sharing these moments constantly. That's that's where I come from on a public space like Twitter or Instagram. Like with, when sharing pictures of my kids or my kid, it, it just feels weird, man. To me, it's just like, ah, oh, I can't even imagine the pain that they're going through. So I just refrain from sharing it. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'd say to that is like, then they should just unfollow you. Or, you know what I yeah. mean? I mean, I like that's up to them. You know, like I always... People are like, oh, I can't believe this. They're always like on my feed. I was like, why are you following them? They don't yeah, follow them. That's a good point. Push unfollow. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Just don't follow them. Like it's not. I mean, you know, it's not rocket science. I that's don't know, true. man. There's there's so many layers to this onion, uh, and it's you know there there are certainly aspects of social media. There are things that I've seen over the last ten days that I thought were really informative, that I thought were really good to see. And there's something to be said that if there wasn't social media, we probably wouldn't be, you know, George Floyd's death wouldn't be as as widespread as it is. And who knows if, you know, we wouldn't be in this movement. So absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of social and cons. Yeah. A lot, and uh, with many topics, look, every topic, there's going to be pros and cons. Yeah. Um, yesterday, Drew Brees and we're recording this on a Wednesday or a Thursday, excuse me, Drew Brees has that moment with Yahoo Finance, which shout out to Yahoo Finance, getting the uh, getting the big interview, getting the big uh, headline there, Yahoo Finance. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm seeing this, I'm like, damn, did they make Drew Brees use a Yahoo email to log in? 
and do this interview because <laughs> if I'm Yahoo Finance and you invite Drew via Gmail, like it would, right. it just wouldn't feel right, you know? It's just weird. Yeah, like <laughs> you can't be doing that. Shout out to Yahoo email and Yahoo accounts out there and Yahoo Fancy Leagues. But do Drew people Brees, still have Yahoo? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Maybe some AOLs rolling around still. One of our mutual friends, he still uses Yahoo. Uh, really? I had to, yeah, I had to shift him over finally. <laughs> And I was like, bro, you got to start using Gmail. John was not happy. <laughs> uh, John seems like a dinosaur that would still have, have like, you know, an old account. <laughs> My dude is, hey, look, when he finally got on Gmail, though, he's like, okay, this is better. This is, this better. is better. But yeah. he built up years of equity in that Yahoo email account, so he <laughs> right. still has to check it. You still got to check it. I get it. Um, That's great. So Drew Brees made his statements, and of course, social media yesterday just destroyed him. And rightfully so in my mind like you can you can you can say what you feel about the anthem and i can agree with you or disagree with you but when you start the whole thing off by saying it's disrespectful out the gate you're like you're gonna lose people there that's it you're gonna lose people there because that's not what it was about like especially when people who are part of the movement going hey guys we're not disrespecting the flag you might think we are but we're not that's where we're coming from as soon as he did it you know, the New Orleans city just cancels him. And then he releases a statement this morning and it was like, oh, dude, I wish you would have just doubled down because you these apology statements, Eric, come on. We're just, we're just, we're just make we're just making sure our teammates still like us and the city still likes us. Just double down on it. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel, man. But is there room for someone to change the way they feel? There is. And There's absolutely room. So why – so let's just say that – and maybe it came too quick. Maybe that's what it was. Mm-hmm. But let's say Drew had conversations with teammates and he took all the – you know, took everything that he got, all the heat on social media, and mm-hmm. then he, you know, sat down and talked to, you know, teammates about it. And he was like, wow, okay. You know, like now I really understand. Like I see where you're coming from, and so he makes a, a public apology. I, it's just tough, man. It's like why, you know, like I'm not. I don't know whether or not that public apology was sincere. I don't know whether it was genuine. I don't know if it was written up by a PR person. But, but if what we're asking people to do is reevaluate their their you know beliefs and listen and try to make positive changes we can't also skewer them for making changes you know or or at least saying that they've you know had a moment in which now they understand better so i i don't know i mean doubling down in certain situations i understand but but that also seems like it could be hard-headed if you didn't actually, if you don't actually still believe it, it'd be one thing if he had the conversations and still believed where he was coming from. But, you know, I read the apology. And again, I'm white. I, you know, it's, I'm probably approaching this, sorry, definitely approaching it from a different point of view. However, when I watch it, I think, great. Like, I hope that he did have conversations, meaningful conversations. And, you know, is able to genuinely make this apology and he will change his attitude, I hope. And that's all we can do, you know? 
Yeah, it was. It, uh, my logic is okay if if the backlash wasn't that severe, especially from his own teammates, mm-hmm. right? Like, let's just say people kind of lost it under you know because there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. There's more important things going on, and it just kind of you know became another you know became another tweet that uh, came and went from Yahoo Finance, and mm-hmm. we you know nobody even talked about it. And you're right, like maybe because of all the uh, feedback that he got that he reevaluated things but if that didn't happen if it didn't go viral if the whole city's not ba- you know there's not backlash towards Drew Brees it's almost like would he have apologized would he have reevaluated and I get it that's like a where does that circle not for, start that's yeah. not for you to make that yeah. decision that's I mean, a fair point if George Floyd's death didn't go viral and all of this like I, I you know everything that's happening over the last 10 days didn't happen. Would we be getting the the traction that we're getting? I don't know. Probably not. No, but it, no, but it did. So, you know, I, I just, I want to be optimistic about, you know, the fact that Drew is a smart guy and, and has given everything he can to new Orleans and new Orleans has, you know, given all the adulation back to him and that he had a moment of realization and was like, holy shit, like what I said really did hurt a lot of people. And all we can do is take his word that he sat down and talked to teammates about it. I don't know. But, and then he changed his stance, you know, I, but again, like, we don't know. I don't know Drew. So I don't, yeah, know, I there's a lot, can't. but, but I, but I do think that if if we're asking people to change the way they think and then they do, or at least they, they actively come out and say, I made a mistake and I want to change the way I think that we can't also skewer them for that. Gotcha. That's I, a fair, yeah. I shouldn't say can't. No, that's but, a fair but point. It just seems like a tough, it's tough. Yeah, it is. It, it's tough. And hopefully you're right. It does impact change. He does, you know, have even more discussions and, uh, whatever causes that they need to be a part of and the Drew Brees Foundation and he can help out and hopefully yeah. it does benefit everything that's going on and we get one step closer to solving this horrible issue. You're right. like that. That is a good point in terms of what positive can come from this. Uh, but the reason I brought it up was, man, social media, and look, I love Twitter and I like keeping a positive energy on Twitter but it seems like you can't even tweet right now because everything is going to it's going to either go hey are you with us or are you against us and i'm not saying like is this black versus everybody else it's are you with us or against us in terms of the movement right and it's like you can't tweet anything right now it seems like i'm i've just been like all right dude i'm just going to tweet my stuff real quickly let you know that hey i'm doing a podcast you can follow here I might get a joke offer too, you know, from everything. Because look, there's been some funny moments from the protests that have been happening, and great positive moments as well. So I've been getting my jokes off in there. But man, everybody else, it's like you tweet anything, and it's like, oh really? We got receipts, we got everything, which I love. I love, but man, it's hard. It's hard these days. You got to be careful with what you say. Yep. Uh, how's everything over there? You guys good over there in LA? Yeah, we're good. Uh, protests got out of hand. Uh, you know, there was obviously the violence and, and everything from the agitators and um, opportunists. But uh, but no, you know, 
we're all we're all good. That's awesome. And for those of you that are listening, if you want to learn more about the LA protest, on the last episode of this podcast, my friend Michael Pearson, who I used to work with, he's out in LA now. He was out at the protest and you know, he called in from the protest as he's walking back to his car as we're nice. recording the episode. And not only describe not only is he describing what's happening, but as a black man living in LA who is actually mentoring the youth, he laid out a good plan of here's how we make change here's how we we get stuff accomplished protests are great but eventually they're gonna die down right there when one day no one's gonna show up and now what do we do so i highly recommend that episode mike mike's a great dude and he had really good points that i think people need to listen to so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that go ahead and do that it's in the feed of wherever you're listening spotify apple or anchor okay let's talk about your career because that's why you're on we're talking about what it's like being an actor. I've got so many questions for you, but first for listeners that don't know you, you need to listen to the off script podcast. You hosted with Lance Erline, mutual friend of ours. Awesome podcast. I was listening to the interviews that you guys have put up for season two, man, really interesting stuff. Michael Kelly, that dude is awesome. Yeah. Just phenomenal dude for a guy at his level to not take himself so seriously and i mean you're getting jokes off on him and he's not being an a-hole about it i love it and obviously you guys have a friendship but he's just a good dude but you know check out the podcast for those of you that don't know about it yet um talk about your career how'd you get into acting man because that's you know that's something that a lot of people want to do but it weeds out a lot of people yeah i i started i guess performing really when i was pretty young in, in houston uh and probably was on stage in middle school and realized, you know, at that age, whatever, what is that, 13, you know, 12, 13, 14, that I loved being on stage. I enjoyed making people laugh. Uh, at that point, that's pretty much what it was. It was a hobby. But And then when I got to high school, I started to focus on it a lot more. Um, you know, that's where I spent the majority of my time outside of school was in rehearsals um, and was fortunate enough to go to a school that, you know, had a pretty robust theater program. So, uh, we were doing quite a bit of work and that was, you know, uh, important for me. And I learned a lot there. And then I knew that I, something I wanted to do. So I decided to go to SC and go out to LA. And, uh, when I got, I auditioned for the BFA program out there. And then when I got in, um, I went and, uh, and loved my time at SC loved, um, everything that, you know, everything about LA I loved. And I loved the campus of SC. I loved all the things it offered. I chose to go there, not to go to a conservatory because of that. You know, I wanted to mess around in the cinema school. I wanted to have football games and Greek system. And, you know, I just, I liked all that, that aspect of a big university. So, but it wasn't until I was in SC that I really like thought, okay, I'm actually going to like, I'm going to take a stab at this as a career. Like that's when I knew it was a passion, but I didn't really know until I was at SC that I was like, I'm going to actually try to do this. And I remember having that conversation with my parents when they visited, like my junior year. I was like, I'm going to do this. And what did your parents say? They were quiet for a second, but they didn't, they, they were like, this makes sense for you. You know, my parents have always been so supportive of me. Now, are you an only um, kid? No, I have a, a sister who's three and a half years older than I am. Okay, so if you so at that point she had already graduated college. 
what was yeah, she, she doing? Was out of school. She was out of school. Um, she's a interior designer. So okay. um, she's out of school at that point. She's in Houston. Um, and um, just a, obviously a very different track than I was on. Um, and she's on a more similar track than my father, uh, his business. So um, I, again, like I didn't get pushback because my parents knew that I, I loved it and they saw that I loved it and they saw that it was something I was going to do. So they've always been really, really supportive of me, which is something that now having children, I can see how hard that would be um, to let, you know, let my kid leave and go across the country and pursue a dream when, you know, there's always like a hope that he's going to be or she's going to be here, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I owe a lot to them in that regard. It's so funny because when I told my parents that I want to get sports radio and sports TV, uh, the first thing that they go is like, why can't, you know, why don't you do what your brothers are doing? Why don't you become a dentist? Yeah. And that's the reason I asked. I was like, man, you know, because anytime you pick a creative field and your parents, it sounded like your parents were cool with it and they kind of, look, they, they raised you. They understood that here's what you wanted to do. You've shown a passion for this. Being immigrant parents, my parents were like, what do you want to, that's, a, that's an option for you? Like, what exactly do you want to do? Why don't you go with something that's proven, you know? Right, um, And right. you're right, like now being parents, it's, you go, man, that's such a tough decision because you want to believe in your kids. You want to believe in them and hope that they do, you know, great things and whatever they pick. But at the same time, you're like, you know, I understand how hard this is and I don't want to see you fail. I do want to see you succeed, but I want to like improve those odds for you. It's such, it's such a tightrope. Yeah. I don't, I, I, you know, I will take what I learned from my parents and I will, I will do hopefully that. I hope that's a decision. You know, I mm -hmm. hope that I'm able to do that. My wife was like, maybe the kids will, you know, if they're, my wife went to boarding school and she was like, you know, maybe if the kids, I mean, if that ends up being a good thing for them, maybe we'll send them to boarding school. I was like, what? No way. I'm not letting them get out that early. Like no. I need them here. Like I love being around them. And a part of that goes to the fact that like I travel a lot, you know, for work. So like if I'm gone for four or five months a year, you know, when I'm with them, I just like, I soak it up and I'm, you know, I like being a, a hands-on father. So you decide junior year that, okay, this is it. I want to become an actor and I'm sure there's, you know, uh, your whole class, uh, how many other students want to do it. I'm sure there's a ton of them. And then in LA, there's obviously tons of people that want to become an actor. They come out there to chase that dream. When did it, when did it go from, okay, I want to do this to, I think I can do this like legit, whether it be an audition or, you know, something that a part that you landed, what actually changed in terms of, whoa, like, yes, I can really do this. I always had, to this day, you know, you always have moments of doubt where you think, um, you know, how long is it going to be between jobs? But I've, I never felt like I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Like I never, you know, I, I got a job while I was in school. Uh, I got my SAG card while I was in school. I got a commercial and then I got a little, uh, a co-star role they did a huge open cattle call at usc that anybody that wanted to go to could go for a, a walk on like a co-star role on a show that at the time was on the air called boston public 
And so we were all college kids that would be playing a high school kid there. And I was fortunate enough in college to look like I was in middle school. So I looked young enough. Um, but I ended up getting that. And, you know, I, I always was kind of like getting some work steady. I, I went through periods where it was longer, but I always was getting just enough work, you know, to, to maintain. Um, I was bartending and catering and waiting tables and doing all the cold calling. And I mean, you know, I had all the odd jobs um, that you can think of, but, but I never, there was only one time in my career where I thought I, I was going to hang it up one time. And it was in 2006, um, 2006. And um, it was around February. And I had, I was such a type A personality that I wrote down all my auditions. So I knew every audition I had gone on and every time I did get it or didn't get it. And, you know, if you know acting and you know auditioning and you're auditioning a lot, which I was at the time because I had really good representation, you know, you could audition a lot and hear a lot of no's before you get that yes. I had gone on 115 auditions and not gotten one role. Wow. And I walked into my acting class that night and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And I had an acting teacher who her whole thing was, if you decide to quit, we'll buy you a pizza and throw you a party. And so uh, she said, anytime you quit, we buy pizzas for the class, have beers, have a party. That's it. You're done. (laughs) So I walk into class that night and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to quit. And she said, okay. So she was like, let's order some pizzas, grab some beers. So we ordered pink dot brought beers, which is like a delivery service at that time. And they brought like probably, you know, 12 beers to the class or whatever, ordered some pizzas. I said, I have one audition tomorrow and I'll go on it, but I haven't even looked at it. And so I didn't even look at the audition. It was for like CSI Miami or something. And we got drunk and we ate pizza and I cried and I was like, this is it. It's over. And the next day I like woke up hungover and I went to this audition. I read the words in the waiting room and I went in and I got it. Um, and so I was like, well, I guess I'll do this job, you know. Do you and remember the words? And then, what's that? Do you remember the words? No, I don't. I played like a Columbine type student, a student that okay. shot up the high school. And David oh, wow. Caruso and I have a big shootout at the end. And so I booked that while I was shooting it, I booked another guest star on something else. And then while I was shooting that, I booked another guest star on something else. So I booked three jobs in a matter of like four weeks. And then a month later booked a a mini series on HBO called Generation Kill, which was like a huge break for me in my career. So the moment I I like tried to hang it up and and then the gods were like, all right, you're now that you've gotten to that place, we'll start to sprinkle you with some work. And, And other than that, I've never really, you know, I, I, I've always known that it's something I want to do and can do. It's crazy how that always works out. You know, there's like a pivotal moment and whether it be a higher power, karma, uh, whatever it is, whatever it is, it seems like for good people and bad people, all right, it happens. It always works out. Like there's always that pivotal moment. And maybe it's, you know, it's a pivotal moment, obviously, because it changes everything. But the way that worked out the day before you're thinking, you're like, okay, that's it. I'm calling it. And sure enough, you book it and you go on this hot streak. It's, it's crazy how that happens. I let go. And that's what I learned in that time. Mm. I let go. Like I, I, I over prepared. 
at that point in my career. I was over preparing and I was pressing. Every time I went into a room, I was pressing. Mm. You know, like I kind of equate it to like, you know, as a as a man, you might know not know this analogy as well as a female, but it female will tell you like when you go to a bar and there's a single guy there who's desperate, I mean, it's you could see it from a mile away. Yep. Right. But when you're when there's a dude there that's like married or just doesn't give two shits, that's when all of a sudden like girls are like coming up to you and wanting to talk and everything else. And it's just I was pressing. I was going into rooms so desperate, pressing. And once that mindset changed, everything changed. Man, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I and still that, press sometimes. I mean, I think we yeah. all do. There's moments where you press, but when but it was about letting go. So you get the you you get on that hot streak. Everything is good. Uh, I heard you talk about Generation Kill with uh, Michael Kelly, which is a great conversation. So if you want to hear that, you can go to whatever podcast service you're using, look up Off Script Podcast, and you'll find it. It's the uh, most recent episode. It's really good stuff. The audio wasn't as bad as you made it out to be, by the way. It was fine. Oh, it was, good. Yeah, I think everyone's used to the quality being a little subpar right now, right? Everyone's right. doing everyone's doing it via you know Zoom or whatever service you're using, but right. It, it was a really good conversation. So you start, you book that one. In acting, it, it's got to be that the more reps you get, the better you get, the more confident you get, the bigger gigs that you get, you understand how to hold the spot here or be on this mark or prepare for a scene or whatever. It sounded like that role for you kind of opened you up to the to the big leagues. Like, here's how we do it in the big leagues. Is that fair? That's fair. A lot of that also is just perception of the industry and how they see you, you know? So I came home now and now all of a sudden I've been a series regular on an HBO show that David Simon and Ed Burns wrote creators of the wire. So now all of a sudden, all the casting directors who were like, yeah, Eric's great. He came in and did good work. Just, you know, might not be ready for that next step. You know, now all of a sudden that opportunity leads to you know, I came back in that next year, I booked a pilot right off the bat. It didn't end up going, but I booked a pilot right off the bat, um, which I should have, <laughs> I came home and I had to choose whether to do, I had had an offer to do Fast and the Furious uh, 3, I think, or 4 at that point. I don't remember what, what it was, but Fast and the Furious 3 or this pilot. And I chose to do the pilot and it never saw the light of day. <laughs> so oh, I made the wrong, I made the wrong choice on that one. Um, Were you? Could you have been part of Tokyo Drift? I, you know, who knows? <laughs> you know, I don't watch those movies, but don't those characters live? Like, don't oh, they, they come around? Dude, it's like an Avengers movie. If you get yeah. in on the Fast and the Furious, you're you're set. You're set yeah. for a long time, man. They're, Trust they'll me, take care of you. Those are residuals that I really wish I had coming yeah. in. So I'm, I, I, that's one of the decisions I messed up. Um, but yeah, dude. I mean, then then the industry sees you in a different way. You know, and so after that, I did, you know, a season of Mad Men and a season of Big Love and and shows all of a sudden now high, high concept, high quality cable shows, casting directors are seeing you in a different way. So that has a lot to do with it. Surely you you have confidence in yourself, usually at that point. Um, and of course, you're learning things every time you walk on a set, you're learning um, from the people you're working with and experiences that you're having. But I would say equally the how the industry views you is a huge part of that 
how big of a difference is it being on a set of an HBO show, of an AMC show, as opposed to being on something smaller that you were landing before? Like, what, what, what's it like? Um, you know, I would say the you you can tell in the in the caliber of filmmakers the directors that most of those shows get um they have more money which means they have more time so you know on shows like that they have more time to spend on scenes so you're 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 never feeling quite as rushed mm. uh as you do on on some other shows that might be pumping out a lot more and they're having to do it on a much tighter quicker schedule so you know, for instance, Boardwalk Empire, that's a sh like, so to give you an example, like a typical hour long show will shoot eight, eight day episodes. That's, that's pretty standard. Seven, some seven, but eight's about right. Um, means Monday to Friday and then three more days. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you start the next day, you'd start the next episode. Whereas like Boardwalk Empire, I think usually had on average about 13 or 14 days. Um, so, you, you know, you can really spend quite a bit of time on each scene. Gotcha. Um, and when you're working on Generation Kill, we shot seven episodes in seven months. So we had one month per episode. One wow. month. So that's, that's really where you start to see it. Uh, now, when you're, just, when, like when you're on a set like that where, okay, you do have eight days or you have a month, whatever it may be, and you being the youngest of – you know, you, you being the youngest guy there early on in your career, was there a pressure like, okay, here's my time. Finally, they, they set the shot. You've been waiting all day. This is your time to deliver. What was that pressure like the first time on Generation Kill? Oh, man, you're, you're, I wish I, the first scene we shot in Africa on Gen Kill was an audition scene. So I knew it so well. And I, I wish I, it's like one scene that I watch and I'm like, that scene is played so wrong. God, I wish I could go back and reshoot that scene. I would shoot that scene so differently. I would approach it so differently, but I was so ingrained in my head the way I did it because I had to audition for that show eight times. And so I had done that scene so much that, I mean, at that point, it was just, it was almost hard to find any sort of, of uh, new feelings or emotion when I was shooting it, you know, to make it real and new and spontaneous um so i i was nervous man i was really nervous it's you know that's it's it's you know all of a sudden you're like oh my god this is the big leagues i got david simon like on the monitor watching and ed burns on the monitor watching and yeah it's crazy dude that is nuts man that is so great that, that man i can't even imagine that's nuts dude um, um when you're not okay so when you're not filming when you're not you know right now especially you said you haven't worked since december because there's, you know, I don't know if any, everybody's heard or not, but there's this crazy thing called a pandemic that's going on right now, and everyone's out of work uh, for the most part. And you know, there's nobody filming anything right now, so it's time to regroup. But in your normal day-to-day, -day, when you are in between gigs, what is life like for you? Are you auditioning? Are you, you know, obviously hanging out with kids and family? What's it like? I'm soaking up as much as I can with the kiddos, um, you know, especially with being out of town. The show, I... I got coming out this fall it's called the right stuff it's gonna be on disney plus and it comes out in september or october they haven't announced it yet but i spent all of last year not all of six months last year in florida so when i'm 
now that I'm here, it's like I, as much as I can with the kids, I like to get them to school, pick them up from school, play after school. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's taking meetings, mm-hmm. auditioning. I'm also developing a show that um, we were supposed to be taking out right now, but now with the pandemic, we're kind of holding off because we don't want to have to pitch it to networks via Zoom. Um, so I'm going to, which I would be an executive producer on. So that's, you know, another avenue that I'm, that I'm going down. Uh, so I'd be doing that as well. Um, so between that and the acting, it's pretty busy. Nice. Now, uh, you mentioned the new show coming out here pretty soon. Um, you are really in your astronaut bag of late. Mm -hmm. It seems like, (laughs) and it not only seems like you actually are, um, what is it like? Hold on, let me get this question up for you. What does it mean to play roles like Gene Kranz and Chris Craft? And were you a space? Were you just a space nerd being from Houston, like like most of us are that grew up here? I was, yeah. I mean, I loved space. I went through that period where you know, I mean, doesn't every kid have that period where they're like, I want to be an astronaut? Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody does, right? I'm forcing but, my daughter right now to become an astronaut. Are you? Yeah, That's, yeah. We only watch so space related cool. things. Watching the the SpaceX takeoff was so awesome. Yeah. Um, It was, so yes, being from Houston, certainly. But but for me, the age I am, the first real memory I have of space is not a good one. It's it's the Challenger. And so that was the first thing that I actually remember about space, which is terrible. Um, However, I always was very interested in it. Um, For All Mankind, I played Gene Kranz who's was the flight director during the Apollo era, like very well-known flight director during the Apollo era. Um, he uh, was the protege of Chris Kraft. So it was, it was odd. I, I just did an interview for USA Today last week and we talked a lot about this and it's a, it's just a very surreal thing to play both of these guys, but, also do it in reverse order if that Mm -hmm. makes sense because i played gene kranz during the apollo era in the late 60s and now i'm playing chris Kraft in the late 50s who was his mentor um they have similar qualities as many flight directors do because it's such a specific job and you need certain qualities to be a successful flight director but they are very different guys um so it was it was a challenge it was one that i was really really tentative and hesitant on Mm -hmm. taking but when I read the script for the right stuff and met with the filmmaker and producers, I, I really like, I just fell in love with them. And, and the story is so cool. And truthfully, because of my time on for all mankind, which I won't give anything away, but I just, I felt like there was more stuff I wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. And that was a world I wanted to live in more. And so the opportunity kind of came at a right time. Now, did they know that you were on for all mankind or are you booking these? pretty much at the same time what was the timeline like so the timeline was a little tricky in the sense that they did not know until after they had given me the job okay and about a month after they had given me the job right before we go to florida like i'm saying maybe five days before we go to florida the trailer for for all mankind drops and i am the whole trailer like my speech is the voiceover for the trailer and i'm all over it and my speech in episode one. And so my manager calls and says, have you seen the trailer for, for All Mankind? And I said, no, what's up? She was like, oh, man. She was like, it's crazy. You're, you know, like you're all over it. Like you're the lead of the show. And I was like, what? I was like, this isn't good. 
because I was, you know, I, I was a guest star and I was a recurring yeah. role, but it made it, it made it seem like the show, like, you know, I at least anchored the trailer. So I was like, oh, this is terrible. Well, turns out now that I know when I talk to the producers on the right stuff about it, that when that trailer dropped, uh, Disney or uh, uh, Nat Geo and Warner Brothers and the producers all had like a huge conversation about whether or not to recast me or not. And wow. uh, David Nutter, who um, was the director at the time for the pilot, um, who had to step away for uh, other circumstances, but he's a phenomenal guy and a great filmmaker. He, you probably know him. He did all the, uh, he did Game of Thrones, a ton of Game of Thrones. And um, he's an EP on Game of Thrones. But anyway, they, you know, the filmmakers, and then they were like, this is our guy. Like he was our guy when he, you know, at the beginning of this and he's our guy now and let's ride with it. So, uh, I'm fortunate that they, they had trust and belief in me that I could differentiate the two guys and that it wasn't going to, you know, cause any sort of issue for people. So for all mankind, by the way, on Apple TV, I finished it in like three days. I loved it. You know, like yeah. you go in with the concept and I've talked about it on the show before. Um, it's what, what if we lost the race to the moon? What happens mm -hmm. next, right? And it escalates really fast, so it's it's a fast show, in my opinion. Um, and they didn't spare any expenses. That's what it, it didn't feel like a cheap show, because no. the logic behind it, you go, man, okay. And then as they start revealing some of the directions the show is gonna go, you go, oh, this is gonna look tacky. And it doesn't. It's really well done. It's it's a show that holds up, man. Like I I enjoyed it. It was a really good show. No, I mean they they have a monster monster budget yeah. on that show if you're ever out in la well they have the two biggest sound stages on sony two of them most shows have one sound stage they have two massive sound stages like one of them is like the moon uh it's pretty cool yeah if you're ever out in la we'll, we'll try to set up to go check that out uh it's yeah, really cool dope. um no it's uh, that shows yeah it's rad i thought one of the things yeah. that they did really well that i, I um appreciated and thought was so cool was that they took actual footage and used real people for the beginning. Uh, you know, certainly the first several episodes. And if they did take footage like Nixon, they might've changed some dialogue, mm -hmm. but it, it, it made it so real. So yeah, real that, that my, crazy. my uncle who's, um, you know, lived during it. He called me and was like, did the Russians make it first? I don't remember this. You know, like they make it so. I was like, no, no, no. That's a preface. That's the premise of the show. Um, but they really make it, you know, pretty realistic. So you believe that aspect of it, which I thought was really cool. Ron Moore's. I mean, he's a genius. He's so. Cool. Yeah, I highly recommend. I can't wait to watch uh, the right stuff, man. I love anything space related, so I'm pumped to see you in those roles. Um, I know you gotta get going, so I'm gonna ask you uh, a couple more questions. Yeah, and man. Then uh, we'll wrap this bad boy up. Yeah. What was the first most LA thing you bought when you had enough money? Well, that's a really good question. I, the first I thing that comes to my ones, mind, so. like the first thing that comes to my mind is I got a, a, a residual check in the mail for commercials I had done. And I had never gotten like a check that looked like that. And I was like, whoa. Uh, so, and I was, I at the time was like catering. So I was just like, you know, I'd never gotten any like decent checks. And this thing came in the mail, like on a 
Thursday night or Thursday afternoon, you know? And I was like, holy shit. So I called my best friend and I was like, dude, get ready. I'm coming to pick you up in an hour. Get dressed. Like we're going out. And I picked him up and we went, or no, I don't think I picked it, but we grabbed a cab, go, we go get sushi. I picked up this like huge sushi dinner. And what then, year was this? Hold on. What year was this? This was probably 2004. Ooh. So sushi at that time is like, ooh, damn, we're going for sushi. Yeah. Oh, this no, isn't we're going like, for sushi oh, yeah. with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at that time, <laughs> when you're making what we're making, like that was like a special occasion. Yeah. Right? Like we're going to sushi on sunset and we're like getting after it. And then we went to a club called The Lounge, I think it was, on sunset. And I got a table and got bottles. And Ooh. I was just like, I am balling you know like this is where i was like i got it all i got it all tonight little did i know that that check is like you know they don't come every week like no. you might not <laughs> see that check again for like six months oh man okay uh, next one what one common actor myth or misconception do you want to clear up Um, I'm digging deep in your soul, bro. Yeah. That it's, that it's glamorous. Yeah. I would say that it's glamorous. There are, there are aspects of this business and career that are glamorous. No doubt. There certainly is. Um, and that are, that you, in fact, we, I talk a little bit, Michael Kelly talks a little bit about it. You know, Mm -hmm. there's aspects of this business that, um, that are really pretty phenomenal when you get to experience them. But, but the majority of it is not, is not very glamorous, you know, and it's hard work. It's blue collar hard work. Uh, and it takes, takes a lot of self-discipline and a lot of self-motivation, uh, to be successful. And then even in success, uh, you know, you're not, it's not as glamorous as you'd think. Yeah. Seems like there's never, it seems like it's a rare, thing to like sit back and enjoy it right because there's always okay what's next Mm -hmm. Uh, how am i going to follow that up i'm going to get something bigger what you know like who maybe i guess you know the a list and within the a list even there's a small percentage that are like yeah i'm good like this is cool but it seems like it's always like hey we're what i gotta stay in the limelight i gotta i gotta get this role that's gonna help me maybe grow a little bit more as an actor. And maybe Limelight's not the right one for everybody, but maybe it's like, hey, I need to get better. I need something bigger. It seems like it's always just, I can't relax. Yeah, I don't know that that ever stops. I mean, I'm sure, I'm speaking out of turn because I don't know her, but I'm sure even, you know, Jennifer Lawrence sometimes sits Mm -hmm. at home and goes, why did, you know, Jessica Chastain get that role and I didn't? You know, I mean, it just, it doesn't stop you know and and that's part of what makes us who we are because you have to have that and you have to have that grind and competitive the competitiveness to to make it work um but you know like i guess anything in life you know you try to take that time to enjoy it certainly mm-hmm. when you're in it certainly if i gave you if i gave you a paragraph to memorize right now how long would it take you oh uh less than five minutes three minutes that's dope 
was yeah. that monologue they did you do that all in one take from uh, for all mankind or was that cut up a little oh, bit? we did it in quite a few takes you'd never mm-hmm. really do anything in a take though but i yeah. mean if we did it 30 times i don't think i ever really messed up i mean but yeah. i had, i had you know monologues like that are particularly difficult because mm-hmm. you know you dialogue is almost easier you know yeah. uh than monologues so you have to be so specific with everything you're doing so i i i you know, dig pretty deep on that one. All right, brother. I know it's uh, been over the time that we talked about, so I'm going to let you go, man. It was awesome talking to you. Can't wait for the future episodes of the Offscript podcast, available right now, by the way, and hosted with our friends at Anchor. Love Anchor, Spotify, yeah, awesome. Apple Podcasts, available everywhere right now. Support them. They are great dudes, obviously, you and Lance Erline, uh friends of mine. So uh, I listened to the Michael Kelly one yesterday, driving to the beach, and I enjoyed it. Um, I would say you guys need to clean it up a little bit because my daughter didn't enjoy it. She's like, Ooh, potty words, potty <laughs> words. <laughs> now, I just made her wear some headphones. I was like, man, watch Onward again for the eighth time. Get out of here. Beat it. <laughs> totally. I'm listening to They'll a podcast. They'll watch shows over and over again. Yeah. And she's telling stop. me like what's about to happen in Onward. I'm like, yes, I know because you watched it eight times. You don't need to tell me. I know what's going to happen, baby. That's Phoenix awful. gem. The Phoenix gem. All right, Eric, thank you so much, brother. I'll talk to you later, okay? Dude, I really appreciate Rahil, man. Thanks for having me on and uh, look forward to visiting with you again soon. All right, that's Eric Layden. Guys, we will talk to you next time. Future guests coming up, Chet Garner of the Day Tripper. Awesome dude. He's going to join us tomorrow. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We'll talk to you guys later.